everyone, I'm Jennifer Duck, and today we're getting grounded on purpose. So take a time out with me and let's dig in. If you've been following the pod, you likely remember episode three with music journalist and author Marissa Moss talking about her book titled Her Country, how the women of country music became the success they were never supposed to be. Well, it's here. Marissa's book was just released to the world for everyone to read, and to no surprise, it's getting a lot of attention. Marissa graciously allowed me to read an excerpt of choice from the book, and after reading through the history of women in country music, it was hard to pick just one. Before we dig in, a little background. The book dives deep into the making of three different country stars all coming up around the same time in Texas, Maren Morris, Mickey Guyton, and Casey Musgraves. It's pretty amazing how these three powerful voices grew up within about 100 miles from each other and were on the scene as young girls around the same time. Fun fact, Casey and Marin paved their way by yodeling, while Mickey found her spirit in the church's choir. Despite now being household names, selling out stadiums, and performing at the Super Bowl, Marin, Mickey, and Casey still have to battle a deeply embedded boys' club, and they're not alone. Marissa's book takes us through history— from Loretta and Dolly to the Dixie Chicks, Shania Twain, Faith Hill, Leanne Rimes, Reese Palmer, as well as Taylor Swift and many other women who face their fair share of abuse from the deeply ingrained good old boys club. This club includes secret rules, like not playing women back-to-back on the radio, which changed just two years ago after mass movements called out the discrimination. Truth be told, when you turn on the radio today, you still don't hear a majority of female voices. There's a reason, and Marissa breaks it down so well in our interview. Country radio still makes or breaks artists, so when they refuse to play women, it affects the whole genre. But behind the scenes, it's even darker. Marissa explains how recorded evidence of sexual harassment and abuse caused many women to leave the genre or quit music altogether. Taylor Swift famously testified how a DJ grabbed her, quote, bare ass, and there was a photo to back it up. The DJ was so emboldened by the accepted culture of abuse in country music, he actually sued Taylor Swift for defamation. Taylor fired back and won, but shortly after this incident, Taylor left country music, opting for pop. Who could blame her? So many other women faced similar abuse, including Casey Musgraves. Marissa explains how an interview with a country radio host named Broadway led to a conversation both on radio and online about Casey's legs. This is when Casey's album, Same Trailer, Different Park, was making headlines everywhere, reaching number one on the country album charts and awarding Casey her first Grammys, as well as CMA and ACM awards. Yet, it was Casey's legs that the host couldn't stop talking about. He kept talking about them, even as Casey looked visibly uncomfortable, asking to touch them, even taking to Twitter to complain with a frowny face that Casey called him creepy, Marissa writes in the book. She was being kind. He doubled down on social media later with photos and specifics, including an analysis of the Tennessee-shaped birthmark on her thigh. He received no penalty or even a flag for his actions. Of course, this was just part of how things were done and how men were expected to talk and interact with any young woman who came through their doors under the guise of, quote, keeping it fun. Alluding to Casey's Grammy Award-winning song, Merry Go Round, Marissa writes, country music could somehow simultaneously be the genre fearful about saying the word damn on the radio, but support a culture where making a comment about a woman's body wasn't just part of the program, it was encouraged. 
We linked Marissa's book in our show notes so you can read more about how some of your favorite female artists are trying to pave the way for future generations to get equal play, equal pay, and the respect they deserve. What I personally realized in this interview is that this is all part of a cultural problem, not only in music, but in nearly every business that will only change if we shine light on the issue. History has shown that when we can truly listen to each other and speak our truths, we can all be better for it. I hope you all enjoy this eye-opening and honest conversation with Marissa Moss. As always, thank you for listening and learning more with me today. Marissa Moss is a renowned journalist who writes for Rolling Stone, American Songwriter, Billboard, NPR, The Nashville Scene, and a number of other publications. She has also appeared on The Today Show and CBS, among other shows we all know well. Marissa was the 2018 recipient of the Rolling Stone Chet Flippo Award for Excellence in Country Music Journalism and was given the award of Best Music Reporter by The Nashville Scene. Her breakthrough story in Rolling Stone Country on the culture of sexual harassment in the world of country radio opened people's eyes to the problems plaguing country music and added a new dimension to the Time's Up and Me Too movements. Marissa Moss, we are so grateful you are here with us today. Welcome to Grounded on Purpose. Hi, thanks for having me. I want to get to the book in just a minute, but first I want to focus on your passions and your purpose. You've graciously spoken to my students on several occasions, and I always walk away thinking, Marissa has that rare combo of grit and grace. And not only have you reported these groundbreaking stories on music and culture, but you've worked with Maria Shriver's Women's Conference and the American Foundation for Equal Rights, among others. How did you come to find this important part of your purpose? Was it natural? Did it happen kind of right away, this is what I'm going to do? Or did things kind of fall into place and then you were driven to those areas? I love that question. First off, I love speaking to your class. It's so (laughs) fun and it's so inspiring. Like I always leave just feeling really good about the future of journalism and young kids today. Like I sound so old when I say that, but because I kind of am old, but I really, I it, love it. And it's a good plug. So anyone who wants to be a guest speaker can come now. You're like plugging me up well, so thank you. Yeah, <laughs> I love it. Everyone should come do it um, because it's really, really gratifying. Um, but I always, I was that kid. I wanted to be a writer my whole childhood. I didn't have any talents that like, you know, I, I didn't start out in music and then realized that I didn't have any talent and I always knew I had no talent in music or anything like that. (laughs) I couldn't act. Like I was good enough at writing and I loved it. I loved telling stories. That was just kind of my thing. And, um, I was super obsessed with Rolling Stone and Spin and my, you know, my heroes and celebrities were the writers in Rolling Stone, which is weird for, I guess, a 13 year old kid, but that was me. Um, (laughs) When I graduated college, I was kind of hard to get a journalism job, and it was post 9-11, and so I started working in PR and then found my way into political PR, and that's how I ended up working with Maria and the American Foundation for Equal Rights, which worked on the um, case against Prop 8 for marriage equality in California, um, which eventually led to it being, you know, um, federalized, but... I think I realized that my sweet spot was in all of those things. So sort of obviously writing, music, and politics, and finding a way to work that all together. Um, And being around Maria, 
Maria Shriver was really inspiring too because she has a really unique way of kind of bringing in all of her loves together. And that's what she created with the women's conference. So she was like, you know, I'm really into, you know, issues that are important to women and, um, but in a super broad way. So she brought in everything that she loved. You know, I think one year, like Michelle Obama came and Alicia Keys, and then she had, you know, politicians, and then she had writers and musicians and she had everything. And she just kind of found a way to kind of make it her own. And, uh, after I left there, I just sort of, you know, dove full-fledged into writing when I moved to Nashville. And uh, that's the short, long, rambling story <laughs> of my life. Well, it's so interesting. I Well, I follow Maria Shriver on Instagram, and she's she's literally just so inspirational. And I remember I read her book, and I think it was right after high school going into college, and it was kind of like the 10 things you need to know, you know, before, I I forget the full title, but it was an amazing book. Um, And she does, she just has this, everything's very positive. You know, she doesn't have like a, um, she calls it out, but it's, it's in a positive way. And I think she has this just really kind of cool way. I could see where she would be a huge mentor and shape a lot of that. So how did you come from there though, to writing about country music because <laughs> that's a big it just seems like a big that's a leap I yeah. guess right um <laughs> there weren't a lot of country artists at the women's conference so there were a few um but we moved to Nashville about a decade ago my husband and I um and I knew I wanted to write full-time it was kind of I had moved into moved to New York after I worked with Maria in LA and we were kind of burnt out and we just wanted to move somewhere a little bit more low-key so we moved to Nashville. Um, a lot has changed in that department since we moved uh-huh. here now. But um, I knew I wanted to commit to writing full time, and it was a lot easier to do here. And I'd actually always loved country music, which was kind of a weird thing for a kid growing up in New York City. Like, it wasn't the most popular at the time. But my dad lived in Texas for a while, and he had this weird, um, well, I shouldn't say weird, but for me and at the time, I thought it was kind of weird that he loved 90s country so much, but I guess it kind of like got into my brain somehow. Um, and I love Bob Dylan, and you, you kind of follow Bob Dylan. You go down that whole folk road, and, and that leads you to country music inevitably. Um, and when I moved here, I I knew I wanted to write about music, so I started doing that, and I started writing for the scene. And, um, and I was interested in country music, and once I was really exposed to the culture here, I was both, how do I put this, um, without kind of like immediately starting to rail against country music. Um, <laughs> I just like, something felt off about it. Like um, I was, you know, out reporting or going to shows or doing interviews and it felt inherently different than what I experienced in New York City. Mm-hmm. Like the publicists were different. They wanted to be in the room and I didn't want them to be in the room. I, why do you have to sit on every interview? Like, it, it just felt like people were always smiling really big at you in that kind of way where that smiling smile is covering something up. Like, mm-hmm. and I just sort of started to push a little bit in that direction. Like, country music is always pushing that everything's perfect, but it doesn't feel that way to me. Like, why doesn't it feel that way to me? And, you know, a hunch can be like a great blessing or your worst nightmare if it's, you know, if it's nothing more than a hunch. But, Then when Taylor Swift started talking about, you know, her experiences um, and her, she accused a, um, a DJ of 
sexually harassing her and actually ended up winning in the lawsuit. I was like, if Taylor Swift is coming out talking about this, there has to be more. Like, if it's happening to Taylor, the biggest superstar out there, you know, what's happening to the up-and-coming country star? Um, what's happening to the, you know, any woman in this town? So that was kind of where I really started to, you know, the antenna started to go up. Mm -hmm. I was like, there's, there's so much more underneath the surface than I'm seeing right now. Yeah. And, and you get into this in the book. I mean, this is a lot of the, the premise of the book. And I love the description, so I'm going to read just a part <laughs> of it word for word here. Um, it says, The full and unbridled inside story of the last 20 years of country music through the lens of Maren Morris, Mickey Guyton, and Casey Musgraves, their peers and inspirations, their paths to stardom, and their battles against a deeply embedded boys club, as well as their efforts to transform the genre into a more inclusive place for all and not just white men in trucker hats. <laughs> I grew up with country music, so you were talking about the <laughs> 90s country. That was me. And true story, I even uh, performed Shania Twain's Man, I Feel Like a Woman, like live on stage at a talent contest. Yeah. Yeah. Can you do it now? Uh, hello. No. <laughs> <laughs> no, Musical no, interlude? No. Uh, no. I mean, I'm at this like music, you know, mega house university, <laughs> and it's a deep, dark secret. And no, I could never because I work with amazing songwriters like we were talking about. Um, but, you know, looking back on all of this, it kind of speaks to me more. I don't think it spoke to me at that time, but you had the Shania and, you know, these women coming out and man, I feel like a woman in these yeah. statements, right? Um, but how did this good old boys club reemerge? I feel like we were coming, you know, out of it. How did it reemerge in the 2000s? Yeah. Um, and that's kind of where my book starts out. And there's a lot that's been written, I think, about those women, specifically Shania, Reba, Faith. And I sort of pick up there and then go beyond. Um, so it starts with Shania, you know, at the top of her game, the chicks, um, Faith, Reba, Trisha Yearwood, just this explosion of women in country music in the mid to late 90s. Um, and it's funny how when we say explosion, it's still not equity. It was like, you know, the highest I think it ever was, was 33% um, women on country radio. But that is like, whew, that's high, mm -hmm. you know. Um, but to kind of make a long story short... I think, can I swear on this podcast? I just realized I was about to swear. Um, but I think it scared the shit out of a lot of people. Um, and that's the summary of it, obviously. I go <laughs> a lot more in depth, tracing through what happened with the chicks and speaking out against George Bush and um, kind of what happened after 9 11 mm -hmm. and this influx of patriotic songs and how that impacted what, you know, women's role, roles in country music and kind of the types of songs that country music was looking to um, put out in the universe. Mm -hmm. But, you know, I think all of those women succeeding really scared a lot of people in this town. And uh, it just looking back, the one thing I realized, especially when I got to the chicks, which I witnessed from living in New York City, living from 9-11, you know, very close to 9-11 and experiencing it that way and being very anti-war participating in anti-war protests at the time I was sort of like yeah that's awesome like great for that I, that seems like the kind of country music I want to get involved with it was a very different experience of the chicks from people in Nashville obviously but when I kind of reconstructed those events I was just like well of course 
this was going to happen. Mm-hmm. Like they were always going to be pushed out of country music. They just needed something to latch on to. If it wasn't the statement that Natalie Maines on, you know, Natalie Maines made on stage saying that George Bush, you know, she wasn't proud that he was from Texas, um, which is such a small comment. Like it's crazy, but yeah. it kind of seemed inevitable. Like they were always going to be pushed out. It just, it was only, it was like a ticking time bomb. It's so interesting you say that, like, that's such a small comment because we are in, you know, now looking back at the past, like, six years even, um, just the rhetoric that's happened and thinking, like, oh, he's – I'm ashamed he's from Texas and I'm I'm just thinking of our, you know, society and how maybe social media plays into this too. Like, you know, there really wasn't social media when the chicks – when this all happened. Right. Um, so how do you see social media transforming – and maybe, I mean, I don't know, like it's, it's such a double-edged sword, but how does that play into all this too? Because it's good with the Me Too movement. The Me Too movement happened because of social media, but then there's just, I think we've gotten kind of ugly as well, right? Yeah. I mean, it's interesting because there was no, obviously no Twitter in 2003 when the chick said that on stage. And so the news came to the States, they were playing abroad and the news, you know, it took a little bit of time. A Guardian reporter reviewed the show and then... Um, she included the comments in that story. So, you know, there's no YouTube, there's no Twitter. If she didn't write that review, you know, I don't think it, it's very unlikely that this would have ever even been a thing. So the Guardian reporter wrote about it and then it got picked up over here and then it was just, you know, kind of chaos mm-hmm. from that. Um, but it's really interesting to think about what it might have happened if we had social media at the time. Because now... You know, everything's a fire, but the fire only burns for like two seconds and then it's out and then it's smoke and the smoke, you know, floats away. It's a double-edged sword. Exactly. (laughs) And it's so situational. Um, Yeah. So if a man had said that, like, I'm I'm ashamed of George Bush, like, you know, would it have, do you think it would have been different? I do, to be honest. I mean, country music at the time was so clutching to patriotism as like it's bread and butter and it's driving force. Like that was the trucks and tailgates of 2003. It was America flag, um, you know, that's it. Soldiers, you know, just full on patriotic mode. Um, So it wouldn't have been great probably if like, you know, I don't even want to make a suggestion of a man who might say that because I'll probably get like a cease and desist or something. But um I definitely think it was the fact that they were women and that they were women that were really willing to speak their minds that propelled it. And people will say, oh, you know, they said it abroad. And so that's anti-American, you know, not on American soil and all of that. But I think it was powerful women with a lot to say that, you know, said something that they didn't like. Yeah. Well, and we're seeing that you know, people, this kind of goes back to the speaking your truth and um, where where your story kind of all begins, right? Like speaking your truth and um, advocating for others to speak your truth, their truths. And I think this is something, there's another thing I want to kind of bring up. You, you tweeted something right after the CMA Awards that kind of stuck with me. You said there were some beautiful moments at the CMAs that, make no mistake, came entirely from artists living and singing their truths even when it wasn't the sensible or obedient choice and not the noble efforts of an organization or industry striving to be better 
the artists. So you emphasized it was the artists making the change. And then you retweeted retweeted Reese Palmer, who I absolutely love, mm. and she was here a few months ago, um, and urged everyone covering the CMAs to include the lack of diversity. And you said not because they don't love country music, but because they do. Mm-hmm. And that was just like, you know, that was – it really just hit me because that's, that's why we want to do it, right? Right. We want to um, – just bring like all this darkness to light and get it out of there, right? Yeah, and that's well, sort of see it, see the people that want country music to grow and change and be more inclusive as this kind of like insurgent effort by a bunch of people that hate country music and are like just using it as this tool to like, you know, wave pride flags all around, you know country music I mean great that sounds much more fun I'd much rather do that but that's not you know it it is coming from people who truly love country music like why would you be so invested in something if you don't so invested in wanting something to be better if you don't love it Mm -hmm. like what what a waste of time to care that deeply about changing something that you give no shits about like that seems like an awful an awful cause and life's mission um and that's like a very popular refrain amongst people who sort of get, I don't know if it's irritated or threatened or whatever it is by the things that Reese C. Palmer talks about or, you know, anyone who's sort of pushing country music to reckon with its history, which is deeply racist. You cannot, you know, take that history out of country music. It is factual. Um, it was engineered to be racist from the beginning. So... If you're ignoring that, you're ignoring history, which people like to do anyway. So um, that's nothing new these days. But, you know, that's sort of the popular refrain from people that seem to take discomfort with these conversations. It's like it's just a bunch of people that hate country music. And that to me seems the craziest thing. Like, I love country music. I just wanted to reflect everybody. Yeah. And for everyone to feel like they can make country music and listen to country music and feel safe. Like, I tweeted something today about this new report that came out about how it was 33% only of the people polled um, felt safe at a country music concert. Wow. And I was like, how is that not setting off alarms yeah. right now in Music Row? Uh, music Row? Like, you're saying that 70, about 70% of people that go to concerts, and I don't know exactly who the respondents were, but of those respondents are not feeling safe. And a lot of people responded back saying, yeah, I went to this concert and I, I didn't feel safe at all. Like, and there are several of those that just come in since this morning. And it's like, that shouldn't be okay with anyone. Like, what, don't. What are they afraid of? Like, what is the. Just if you're, you know, if you're a person of color and an Asian American woman responded back to me. She said, I was just at a Kane Brown concert and I was the only person that looked like me and I didn't feel safe. Mm. Like, do we, do we want that? Like. Do you want people going to concerts and seeing Confederate flags waving in the audience and feeling threatened for their safety? Because um, that seems horrible, horrible to me. Like, and no matter what side of the political spectrum you might be on, although I really kind of am loath to assign racism to <laughs> like any side of a political spectrum, but that should be something that we all want, no matter what your beliefs are. That you can feel safe going into a country show. Um, no matter who you are and you can feel welcome like to make country music or to listen to it or to talk about it um and yeah sometimes I I go off a little hard on social media about it or 
more specifically in my work, but I know that should be something I think we all should really care deeply about. Yeah. Like love each other. I mean, mm -hmm. love thy neighbor. Okay. If we're going to, you know, if we're going to talk about like just having respect for everyone, um, just putting yourself in other people's shoes and having those perspectives. Like, and I think that's the thing about journalism is you get to hear from every kind of person, mm -hmm. like every, and I mean, like, that's just, you're telling people's stories. So when people reach out to you, you know, that woman probably wouldn't tell that story to anyone else, you mm -hmm. know, and she feel safe with you. That's like a gift you have as well, where you talk to a lot of different people who are afraid to speak out, but you make them comfortable because you are an advocate. Um, and that kind of makes, it makes me think of the Rolling Stone story mm -hmm. um, that you did. It was called Inside Country Radio's Dark Secret History of Sexual Harassment and Misconduct. And this article, like it, it came out a few years ago, but it was the first to kind of expose music row country music and the harassment that was going on. Like, you know, the Me Too Time's Up movement you were the one to kind of break this. You had 30 different, is that right? 30 mm -hmm. different people yeah. speak to you on record about yeah, this. Over 30. Yeah. over 30. And it hadn't been written about before. Why did it take so long for this to come out? And is that part of kind of the country music, you know, this, this bubble or the smile you talked about at the beginning mm -hmm. where something, something is off? Yeah. And there's, the thing that you learn immediately when you get to Nashville is that country music is a family. So that's what everyone drills, you know, kind of drills in your head. Country music's a family. And they mean it at first to mean, you know, we all look out for each other. You know, we everybody knows each other. It's this comforting group where we all help each other. But, like, there is a darkness that goes along with saying that a professional community is a family. Because if you know any family, you know, you protect secrets you know, um, there's a lot of things that you can't tell to your family members. Um, there's a lot of rifts. Like a family is an imperfect being uh, by nature. And that's kind of the way Nashville seems to be. It's, you know, there's another person that I talk about in the story, and he's quoted in another article calling Nashville an island of morality. Mm. That, you know, sits strangely with me after <laughs> learning very much. I mean... Saying anything in the entertainment industry, for one, given what we've learned through Me Too, um, through so much reporting, is an island of morality is crazy. Like, mm -hmm. we know that. We, you can even just look at, you know, the representation of, representation of women or people of color to understand that that alone doesn't make it an island of morality, let alone um, what I found out in my reporting and, and Nashville just hadn't, and I still don't think it has enough, and, and I think there's more to say, more reporting to do in terms of pushing Nashville to really, you know, have its, quote, me too moment, because mm -hmm. I don't think it has. I hope that that article started the conversation, but I know there's more that needs to be said. The thing that I tried to explore in that piece that, again, was sort of started out as a hunch, but I think kind of bared out in the reporting was that there is a connection between how few women you hear on country airplay and what's going on in these country radio visits. It's all interconnected. And that seemed really significant to me. Mm -hmm. And if you're a woman, and this applies to any industry, if you're feeling threatened or unsafe or you're experiencing sexual harassment or sexual abuse, um, it's very difficult to succeed. And we're doing a really good job in Nashville of keeping that, you know, keeping that wall up mm -hmm. for women. You know, if you're already fighting with other women 
for the one spot that only goes out, mind you, to white women. So if you're one of a select group of white women and you're fighting for that one white lady spot, you are not going to speak out against the program director who touched your leg or the person at the label who told you to, you know, show more skin or the, you know, radio rep who left a provocative message on your phone. You know, it all keeps women exactly in their place. Yeah. And and I think that's important to note, like, this isn't just country music, big right. tech, the law industry, um, the media industry in general. And I mean, this is something I can speak to. So Katie Couric was just in town, and I, of course, worked with her. Um, but she talks about journalism's problems with harassment and misogyny. And, um, you know, she started at ABC News. 20 years later, I started at ABC News. All her stories in that book replicate like 20 years later happened to me you know what I mean like it's just it's it's spot on and there is a 20 year gap of how that happened and and it's not just ABC News you know it's it's the industry in general and we both have daughters and I just think as even if you don't have daughters if you have sisters if you have cousins if you have aunts anyone um how do we stop this trend from continuing like how do we just Make sure, like our, our my students and my daughters, everyone we know can stand up to this. And how do we make it stop? I wish I had that answer. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> I mean something, and I think this is really important, and something I've been kind of thinking about a lot and studying over the past year or two, is why it's really important to bring the conversation of racial equity into our conversations about sexism and misogyny. Because there's a lot of really great books that I've been reading, too, um, one by Koa Beck on white feminism that really kind of made me think a lot about how, especially in Nashville, like our quest for equality was really it was really focused on white women. And I think it's a lot of reprogramming to put the black, you know, put black women at the center and then see what happens. Mm. You know, I say this in the book in a little bit of a softer way, but as long as we have white women only fighting for themselves, it's always going to crumble. Because, I mean, if you look at end-of-year charts right now, I think it was all men, actually, so not Billboard. <laughs> but um, Media Base had 20 songs by men in the top 20. Well, actually, sorry, 19 songs by men and one song by one woman. And she's going to do anything she can to stay in that spot. She's not going to lift up other women. She's not going to hold the door open. She's going to, you know kick and scream and do anything she can to take that one spot. So it's a little bit more of a radical way of thinking, I guess, but I think Nashville needs to do a lot of it, yeah. actually. Well, yeah. I mean, because it's – and it's we, we just found out shortly after your Rolling Stone article was the news that – and a lot of people knew this, but it was news to me um, – country radio didn't play women back-to-back. Mm-hmm. Um, explain that because I don't know that everyone knows this even now. I tell my students this and they're like, what? You yeah. know, this was 2019 and this all kind of came to light and became headlines. Yeah, it's crazy. There's always sort of the, like these country music best practices or country radio best practices and way of do, ways of doing things that are – believed and one is women don't want to hear women and the other is don't play women back to back so no two women back to back most programmers will deny that that exists and that they believe those things but it is actually written into programming manuals that are circulated like from prominent 
radio consultants. Um, so that's kind of a nice way they can kind of go around things is hire these radio um, independent consultants and use their advice, but it's not, you know, in-house. It's not coming, you know, in their own cumulus or I heart fluffy radio or whatever. Ways of doing things is coming from these consultants saying, don't play women back to back. And, you know, in, in whatever language they use that women don't want to hear women, that they want to hear men. Some of these things end up being true because you want to hear what's familiar, mm -hmm. right? Like that's what radio is. You turn on the radio in the car and you want to sing along to what's familiar and that's what you like. So if you turn on the radio and you hear a song and, you know, unless you're kind of a very engaged consumer of music and you're turning on the radio for discovery, you're turning it on to sing along and what you sing along to is men. So if suddenly you hear a song by a woman, it's going to maybe sound a little different. It's going to sound weird. Like, you know, it's like you're listening to uh, a hip hop station and all of a sudden you hear a classical piece of music. You're mm -hmm. like, well, this is one I sign up for, you know? And that's how it is with listeners when women come on the radio now. So women aren't testing well, you know, when you sort of play songs for um, in the testing phase to see what people respond to. They're not responding well to women because you're so conditioned to not like the sound of a woman's voice at this point. Like you equate country radio with men, with men singing about trucks and family and whatever. Um, and there's the occasional woman that gets to kind of come through and it's occasionally, you know, mostly Carrie Underwood, sometimes Miranda Lambert. Um, it's crazy that even Miranda Lambert, who's like one of the genre's biggest stars and just wildly talented, even has a hard time getting played at country radio. But yeah, these things are, you know, part of standard practice at radio now. And they, you know, they'll say no, like, that's not the way it is. We play women, um, but they don't. <laughs> is this why, um, you know, and this is just kind of a, maybe there's not an answer to this, but do you think this is some of the reason why Taylor and Casey, Taylor Swift and Casey Musgraves kind of left the genre? Because <laughs> it's kind of like, all right, like, why am I playing this game? Because, you know? Yeah, I mean, I don't want to speak for them, but I would leave, I mean... Why do you want to stick around? Mm -hmm. Like <laughs> someone like Casey Musgrave, she had two records. She, you know, she pushed songs to radio, really good songs like Merry Go Round and Biscuits on her second record and Follow Your Arrow, which was banned. <laughs> um, and you do all this and country radio doesn't embrace you. And then, you know, how do you blame women for saying, well, screw this? Mm -hmm. Like, why would I fight here? Why would I deal with the good old boys club? Why would I release these songs to radio and um, have all this promo money put into radio and have it yield nothing? Like, and because a lot of people assume that country is misogynistic and racist and conservative, and I, and I don't say that to say that conservative is bad, of course, you know, um, but it's limited to a certain viewpoint, a lot of people are pushed out of it if they don't fall into those back those boxes and so they find Casey Musgraves or they find Marin Morris or they find Margot Price and so it's like the least surprising thing to me in the world that artists would look elsewhere to find people that enjoy their expression and where they can express freely like why would you not yeah yeah so you did the book really focused from 2000 to now do mm -hmm. you think there is hope like is there are we at least 
seeing little change or I know we have a long way to go, but is there, you know, the more we hear um, women speak up about this, the more we see some companies who, you know, when they said uh, women were not being back to back, I know like CMT and other um, places stepped up and called it out. And now they have programming just for women next from the country and other things. Um, and that's just one example. I know other outlets have done that. And I know that's a very small, small change. But do you think that these small changes will keep happening? Is there hope that it could get better? I try not to be too depressing and cynical about it. <laughs> if we're talking about radio, it's not changing. Mm-hmm. I mean, in that one, we could do, you know, a whole other seven hour conversation on, you know, the Telecommunications Act and consolidation and all that stuff. So the problem at radio is really deep. It, it's far more even than just appealing to who's programming now because the industry is consolidated so deeply and it's automated so deeply. So that, like, to me is – I don't ever want to say anything's a lost cause, but that one won't change unless people start going after advertisers, which is – what I would do if I were going to be an activist in the space. Mm -hmm. I would target these advertisers and say you're advertising, you know, on shows that are basically fully sexist and, you know, exclude women. Like maybe you should pull your advertising. But I mean, kind of where I am now is that it just feels like there have to be other paths. Mm -hmm. Like country music feels splintered. And I think that's upsetting for people to realize, but you're not melding these worlds back together. There was an earthquake and, you know, we're drifting, you know, the two sides of country music are drifting apart. There's the people who are successful on country radio and there are the people who are not and who are never going to be, no matter how hard they try. And that's really sad because there's a lot of people who want to be on country radio, who grow off with country radio and who that means success to them. And in a lot of ways it is success. Mm -hmm. Like if you want artists you like to make money, and be able to devote themselves full-time to making music and touring, uh, you know, they have to, you know, have market share. Uh, I don't know. I try not to be too doomsday about it. But I think for country radio to change, it, it needs some, like, radical action. Yeah. And we're not doing it now. Everyone's just sitting and twiddling their thumbs. And the labels blame radio, and radio blames labels, and... Everyone blames someone else and no one does anything because everyone's making money, you know, and has nice houses and the panhandle and mm-hmm. no one's doing anything. Yeah. So it's something that definitely will continue to have conversations on. <laughs> and the book, I mean, really fleshes out the history of this. I mean, the full you know, 20 plus years and going back even before that. But there is just so much history to be learned. And again, as someone who grew up in the middle of nowhere in Ohio, um, listening to country music at every football game and high school dance. And I mean, the Garth Brook, the dance, I mean, that was the longest song and you better choose the right partner, right? Um, <laughs> uh, or Faith Hill, you know, we, we I just like, grew up with all this. Um, I never realized the history either until I moved here and really started diving in and started following your work. Um, and it's so important what you do. And it's hard. I mean, it's hard to talk about all this, but if we don't talk about it, like then what, you know? Yeah. Um, so what you do is just... Um, bringing back to the whole purpose. Your purpose is so important for us as a society. So thank you so much. Thank you. Um, well, this brings Likewise. us. <laughs> thank you. This brings us to the final minutes of the podcast, and this is where we do kind of the speed round of questions. Oh boy! Okay. Uh-huh. You ready? Yeah. Okay. All right. I know you need to do a little stretch. Yeah, do stretching anything. Out okay. a little bit. <laughs> so um, 
just in a few words, tell me, what does the word grounded mean to you? These days, probably family, my kids. That probably answers question two, but what's <laughs> keeping you grounded right now? Um, my kids, and but more than that, probably their future and thinking about what that looks like. If you had to sum up your purpose in five words or less, what would you say? Making things better. What's feeding your purpose right now in terms of books, podcasts, documentaries, movies? Um, I'm seeing what is going on in country music that's positive and enriching. Reese Palmer's work, all the people in Nashville who are really fighting to make a change. Uh, website called Black Opry. People, there's a lot of really amazing people out there fighting really hard, and that's really inspiring. Yeah. And your book is feeding your purpose, too, I assume, right? I, yeah, I guess so. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you so much, Marissa. This has just been a pleasure, and I know it's such a busy time for you with the book coming out. We're so excited. And again, we're going to put the link in the show notes. But thank you for joining us. Oh, gosh. Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to Grounded on Purpose. If you enjoy the podcast, please take a moment to subscribe and leave a rating, which helps others find us and helps our small team to know we should keep producing more episodes. You can also follow us on Instagram at Grounded on Purpose. Every day is a gift with a new lesson. Please join us once a month as we get grounded together on purpose. Thanks again for listening. Thank you.